All right. Thank you, Suzanne. If you could read our scripture for us this morning. Took a minute to unmute. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thank you, Suzanne. <clears throat> And yes, Dwayne, as Suzanne was um, saying, it sounds very similar to our um, scripture from last week. So um, I'm sure that there will be some new insights this week in your let it go sermon. Let it go. Okay. Okay. Listen, uh, well, happy Super Bowl Sunday to everybody, right? I don't know about you, but uh, if you haven't been listening, the odds makers have concluded that there is zero chance that the Washington football team will lose this game tonight. Seriously, right? And the same cannot be said of either the Buccaneers or the Chiefs. So that means that Washington must be superior to both of them, right? Now, while your mind is twisting on that a little bit, I'll switch gears on you and just say that I believe that Jesus was always saying things that sounded just that illogical to his disciples. And I'm not sure that they ever got used to it. For example, in the passage Suzanne just read, Jesus does it again. I mean, he's told them often, right, that they need to forgive people. 
is Luke 17, which E taught from last week, which Nikki just mentioned. Jesus told the disciples that if someone sins against you seven times in a day, you've got to forgive him each time. And when Jesus said this, the disciples' response was basically to throw up their hands and say, oh, you got to increase our faith. In other words, there ain't no way we can do this. There's no way we can pull this off. And Jesus' response was, look, you, you guys don't need more faith. The tiniest amount of faith that you can possibly imagine, far less than you actually possess, is sufficient. What you need is not more faith, but obedience. Just the commitment to take that faith on a whirl and believe what I say to be true and act on it and then just marvel at what happens. Listen, let me ask you this. If a person who is not a Christian decides to do what God says, for example, about how we should handle our money, do you think that person will be blessed for doing that? Well, I do. If a person who's not a Christian decides to deal with their spouse like God says we should deal with our spouses, do you think that person's going to have a happier marriage? I do. If a person who's not a Christian decides to treat people who are their enemies like God says, people who have wronged them, do you think God will bless that person's life and relationships? I do. Primarily, not only do I read it in scripture, but I've personally experienced it. How about this? So has potty-mouthed comedian Sarah Silverman. And for that, I refer you to an article in yesterday's Washington Post. And for those of you listening later on this, uh, of this to, on, broad, on a podcast, that article is in the 6th February 2021 Washington Post. And the article is entitled, Sarah Silverman Just Wants to Make Things Right. Now, you don't, I don't know if you know anything about Sarah Silverman. She is not a Christian, not even close, right? She doesn't even know she's employing God's tools. She's just decided she's going to try to do something weird, which is to connect with people dramatically unlike herself. And then she's been kind of amazed at the relationships that she's forming. Now, imagine, imagine the power of that if it were being supercharged by a Christian operating under the Holy Spirit, using faith in what God says to do. Well, this week, which is our penultimate message in our Parables of Jesus series, I want to circle back and deal with the issue that was the springboard for that entire conversation that E used last week to talk about faith. And the springboard in that conversation was this thing called forgiveness that Jesus talked about all the time. So as Suzanne just read, we're in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. I got a strong opinion that this message just might change your life. So if you got your Bibles in hand, get your pen and paper ready to take notes, you're ready to hear. Now, we don't know in Matthew the specific time frame for when this story occurred. When Luke writes his gospel, he writes the story of Jesus in pretty much chronological order. But the book of Matthew is not written that way. Matthew writes about a series of events, and then he gathers some of the teachings of Jesus. Then he talks about some more events, followed by some more teachings of Jesus. And he does it that way because his goal was primarily, primarily to teach his countrymen, the Jews, and convince them that Christ was the Messiah. So Matthew details messianic miracles that Jesus did, some of the experiences that Jesus had, and he gathers that together with some of Jesus' teachings for, for effect. Now, Matthew's not worried too much about chronological order. So we don't know whether what we read here in Matthew took place before what we read last weekend. But it certainly picks up the idea and has some rather profound things to say 
about the importance of forgiveness. And I think we miss some of these sometimes. So I want to take a look at it. So here's what, how it starts, right? Peter comes up and asks Christ, uh, if my brother sins against me and I forgive him, how about seven times? Now we can read that and not really grasp the context. What Peter said was a fairly, really generous offer. And I suspect he thought perhaps he was implementing what Jesus said over in, over in Luke. See, the rabbis had said this. If you want to show that you're a forgiving person, you need to forgive people four times. And we don't know exactly where they got that from, but maybe this is where. In the book of Amos, God makes these uh, declarations against the pagan nations um, around Israel. And he says this, uh, these, these people were mocking God. They were, they were doing demonic worship. They were sacrificing children on the altars. It was pretty, pretty horrible things. Uh, and their time of judgment had come. And God said this, look, I've warned you once. I've warned you twice. I've warned you three times. And now I'm warning you the fourth time. After that comes judgment. So I think the Jewish religious leaders figured, okay, what the God is saying there is that we got to kind of give people forgiveness four times, and then we can kill them or whatever. So Peter's offer to forgive seven times is actually pretty magnanimous. And he's probably expecting Jesus to be super wowed, but Jesus doesn't clap for him. He goes, no, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven, right? In other words, it's such a big number. You, 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 you don't stop forgiving. Don't put a number on it. But then after he says this, Jesus launches into this little story, this little parable about how forgiveness is supposed to work for followers of Christ, people living in the kingdom. God forgives you and me this way, basically he says. So now you, sons and daughters, do that too. In fact, if you don't, you might just think you're a son or daughter. You might not be. So this is important stuff to grasp today. <clears throat> Here's the parable, right? Kingdom of God, Jesus says, is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He began to settle with one, with one, and he brought him in. The guy owed him 10,000 talents. <clears throat> we don't do talents today, but a talent is a, is a measure of weight. It's uh, about 75 pounds. So imagine, this guy owes uh, 10,000 75-pound bags of gold. <laughs> That's 750,000 pounds of gold. So do you think that this guy was in way over his head? Oh, yeah. He was hopelessly in over his head. And since he couldn't pay, of course, his master orders him to be sold with his wife and kids, all that he had, and payment to be made. Now, maybe some of you have gone through bankruptcy, or maybe you know folks, uh, friends or whatever, who have. It's really bad, right? But at least... They let you keep your home and a few things so you don't, you're not out on the street, right? But back then, there were two options. One was debtor's prison, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the other one was where they would literally take everything that you have and sell it. And if that didn't cover the debt, you could then be sold as, uh, as, as indentured servants to work off your debt until it's paid off. Now, you might have a lot of stuff, but once it's all sold and you and your family are made indentured servants, to pay off 750,000 pounds of gold, guess how long you're going to be in that state? Yep, the rest of your life and thousands of years after that. <laughs> it's an impossible debt to pay. So this guy is in deep kimchi. So the servant falls on his knees, knees and implores his master, please, please have patience with me. 
I will pay you everything. <clears throat> Seriously. Be patient. I'll pay it all back. It's never going to happen. So let's face it. You know, it's hopeless. And out of pity, though, the master releases him and forgives the debt. The entire debt completely forgiven. Far more than the guy even asked for. And then the story continues. The same guy who was just forgiven went out and found a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. Now, back then, most people were day laborers, and the income was pretty consistent, about one denarius a day. So what this guy owes him is yeah, basically three and a half months salary. Okay, it's not good. It's not an insignificant amount, but it's not an impossible amount. Most of us, when we took out our first mortgages, we probably owed far more than a third of our yearly salary, right, to, to, to take on the debt. So this guy finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii, and he says, uh, no, no, uh, you got to pay it right now. He seizes him, he begins to choke him, says, pay what you owe. Then this guy says something pretty familiar. Have patience with me, I'll pay you. That's exactly what the other guy said to his master. Exactly the same thing. But this guy refused and put him in prison. Now, this is the debtor's prison. Here's how it worked. Somebody owed you money, you could throw them in prison. Well, guess what they're doing in prison? Nothing. They're not working, they're not earning any salary. So what's the, what's the idea? Well, prison was so bad, so horrible. There was no ACLU. There was no you know, nice exercise yard where you could play basketball. There's no cable TV. No, no, you're in there. It's, 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 it's hell on earth. That's what it is. And it's so bad because the intent was that it would be so bad for you that your family and your friends and relatives would all get together and raise the money to pay you to get out of there. It's worse than being sold as an indentured servant. And that's what this guy does to the person who owes him. Well, guess what? All the rest of the servants watch what's taking place. And they're, they're greatly distressed. And they go and tattle, uh, report to their master all that's taken place. The master summons the, the original servant and says this. And you, you pay attention to these words. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Now, if you forgive somebody a big debt and then that person re refuses to play it forward, what might you call them? Well, I would probably have thought, well, okay, ungrateful, that works. The guy's ungrateful. That's not what Jesus calls this person. Calls him wicked. If you are forgiven much, but then you refuse to forgive others far less, you are wicked. And should you not have had mercy, Jesus says, or the master says, on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. In other words, I gave you, an, I forgive you this incredible debt, more than you would ever be able to pay off. And I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you have played it forward? Then because you didn't, you show you have no idea what you just been forgiven. And in anger, his anger, master delivered him to the jailers. So now he's in debtor's prison where things are far worse until he should pay off all his debt. Now, how long is that going to be? 750000 pounds of gold, till it's paid off, you're there. You're there forever. Because <laughs> nobody's going to be able to pay that much money off. But then Jesus says this, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you did not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, you want to talk about some hard sayings of Christ. He's either exaggerating for effect, or he's saying something incredibly profound that we in our modern day age and culture just don't take seriously enough. And by the way, this isn't being addressed to people who don't know Jesus. These are people who are kind of following Jesus. And their, their biggest problem 
you know, uh, is, is, is that, well, people who don't know Jesus, for example, their biggest problem isn't forgiving people. Their biggest problem is getting right with God. This is thing is addressed to people who are kind of hanging around with Jesus, who, who see themselves as followers of Christ, as his disciples, right? So we, we tend to look in the mirror, I think, sometimes and go, well, I, I think I'm a pretty forgiving person. I mean, I forgive me with most people, except for those, those two people in my past over there. And that, let me tell you what they did and why it was so bad and why it was so hurtful and why that gives me the right not to have to forgive them. And what Jesus is saying is, man, unless we forgive everybody, what happened to this guy in this story is how God's going to treat you and me. So, and if you want to know what happens to the wicked servant, just check out what happened to the wicked servant who hid his master's money rather than investing in it. We preached on that a few weeks ago. That money was taken away from him and he was cast into the outer darkness. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like heaven. Outer darkness. So the message is pretty clear, but here's what I think. I think we need to kind of dig a little bit more into what forgiveness really is. Because I think sometimes our inability or unwillingness to forgive is, is especially when we're the ones that have, have done wrong, to understand what forgiveness really is towards us. A lot of that stuff, both ways, whether we're, whether, whether we're the offender or the offended, some goofy ideas we have about what forgiveness is. So maybe we can straighten some of that out and make uh, forgiveness just a little bit more palatable and easy for us. Maybe not, but at least it'll help us, help us give it some understanding about what God's forgiveness looks like and what God expects from us. So we're going to spend some time on that. What is, what is forgiveness and what isn't? But the main point, if you don't hear anything else, it's clear that forgiveness is a big deal. It's a very big deal in the kingdom of God. It's, it's not an optional response for those who are, you know, really into Jesus. It's, it's the core of what it means to be forgiven and to live as a Christ follower. It's pretty clear in this parable, right? But we, all, we have, it's not the only place it shows up. We got the Lord's Prayer, right? Remember the line? And forgive us our trespasses. How much? Oh, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It implies that God's only going to forgive us in the measure that we dole it out to others. There's another verse that I think has been one of the most misrepresented or misinterpreted in all of Scripture. It's in Luke 6. If you got your pins, you can write that down. Luke 6, 37 and 38. Uh, I think it's traditionally used by preachers in a misleading way. But let's start with 38, and I'll show you why. It's, mis it's misinterpreted. The verse 38 says this, Luke 6, 38. Give. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church, but I'll tell you, if you did and you were a little kid, here's what you might have heard right before they took up the offering and passed the collection plate, right? Picture this. If you, if you, you get this, if you've ever been one of those buffet places with the self-serve ice cream dispensers, you put your cup under there, you fill it up, but you know this, right? If you, if you stir it a little bit, if you shake it a little bit, you can get the air bubbles out and you can get even more in the cup. So here, here's what the preacher would say. Uh, so if you put money in the plate, God's going to take that. He's going to press it down. He's going to shake it around and you'll find that God returns far more back to you. Here's the only problem with that. That's not what that verse is saying. It ain't talking about money. How do I know? Oh, verse 37, the verse right before 38. Here's what it says. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, 
and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Those are verses that are saying God is kind of watching, saying, Dwayne, what kind of been, what kind of forgiveness are you interested in? What kind of forgiveness would you like? Because the kind of forgiveness that you dole out is how I'm going to apply my forgiveness to you. And so question is, do you want all of your sins forgiven? Do you, or do you want a hanging chad with a little sin on it at the end of your, at the end of your life? You know, God's forgiven 99% of your sin, but there's still one. If there's one sin not accounted for, guess where you're going? Yeah, bad place. Because God has to take care of all of our sin because it says even one sin will get us judgment. But how do you want to avoid judgment? Well, God's got to forgive all your sin. God's saying, you want to, you want to, you want to, you want that kind of forgiveness from me? You want me to forgive all of your sins? You want them all accounted for? Hmm. You need to dole that out as my son and daughter to the world that you live in. Same thing we see in Ephesians. It says this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, 32. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Let all bitterness, let all wrath, let all anger, let all clamor, let all slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So how do we make sure we don't grieve the Spirit? Well, we get rid of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, which are, if you think about it, all traits associated with you and me not being willing to forgive people who've hurt us or wronged us. Those are the things that show up. Why do you get, why do you get angry or mad or, angry or, 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 or bitterness? What, all those things are results of people doing us wrong and us taking it in and saying, okay, I'm not going to forgive that. So how are we supposed to treat people who've forgiven us? How do we know that we've forgiven them? Here's his results. We're kind to them. We are tender hearted. We care about them. We seek to understand things from their perspective. We seek to do work for their best. We hold no grudges. And you think about it, that's kind of exactly how God in Christ has treated us, right? So let's get practical. First, there are some things we believe that are wrong that, that I think are wrong and that we, and that actually get in the way of our ability to forgive others. So let's talk about those things first. What forgiveness isn't. Number one, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. One of the reasons I think we have a hard time forgiving is that we think that what God is asking us to do is actually forget that something happened. We, we think that, that that's how God works. Listen, I was taught this in Sunday school as a kid, right? That once God forgives you, he doesn't even remember those sins anymore. And here are the two primary scriptures used for that. One is Psalm 103. It says, God, uh, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. The second one is in Jeremiah 34. It says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That second verse in Jeremiah is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. So here's what we think. We think God totally forgets our sin. And then when we try to forgive somebody, we go through this thing where, okay, wait a minute, uh, I'm still hurting. I'm still hurting about that. I, I keep feeling it. I, I, I keep remembering it. And we kind of feel bad because we just can't let the memory of it go. So we must not be forgiven right. We, we, we must not be doing it right. And God must be upset with me because I'm not doing it right. And so we just kind of, we just kind of give up. Let me tell you why this myth 
of a God that doesn't remember is a myth. The Hebrew concept of remembering no more is not about being unable to recall the details of something that's happened. No, no, you, you remember what happened. But remembering it no more is all about you turning your focus or directing your attention to something else. So when God says he's remembering your sin no more, it's not like he's forgot your sin. It's that he's, 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 not, he's, not, he's no longer directing his attention to those sins. He's turning his attention away from your sin to something else. Like, wait, wait a minute, now you're clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ. Um, there's an example, right? When Jesus comes back in his, in his uh, resurrected form, he's still got nail prints in his hands. He's still got nail scars on his feet. He's still got a, a sword cut on his ribs. He's still got puncture wounds in his head from the thorns. He remembers. But you know what? All that's secondary to something else because his, his attention is turned to what those wounds accomplished, which is to cover all those sins for everyone who has faith in Christ. Now, the best example of this whole concept of God not, remem might rem not remembering might be in Genesis. You know, there's God creates everything, blah, blah, blah. Things happen, sin happens. Things get down, go down the tubes until the, basically the world is just horrible. And, uh, and God says, if I don't do something, man is going to become extinct. So he causes this worldwide flood. He takes eight people, Noah, his family, all the critters, they're all floating in the water, right? In this ark for like seemingly forever. And then we see this in Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow on the earth and the water subsided. Listen, this is not saying that God was up in heaven, taking care of business in the universe, down to the subatomic particles, right? Totally having forgotten about Noah. And suddenly, something triggers his mind, something makes him remember. And he shrieks about having, you know, my gosh, I left the water on. And he switches into high gear. No, that did not happen. It just simply means that when the time passed for the water to need to subside and everyone on board the ark to get off of the ark, God turned his attention to that and he remembered Noah's and the animals. It didn't mean he ever forgot them. I remember your sins no more. doesn't mean God is up there going, you know, there, I seem to recall that there was something going on with that David and Bathsheba thing. Well, what, what, what was it? I mean, I just can't seem to remember. This is driving me nuts. No, no, it simply doesn't mean he's, it simply means he's not focused on that anymore, right? So can you see how incredibly important it is for us when God asks us to forgive? No, no, you remember. It's just that like God, you choose to focus on something else instead of the offense. And for reasons we're gonna see in a moment, it ain't like that stuff never happened. That stuff did happen. So forgiveness is not forgetting it's refocusing, shifting our focus to something else in favor of that other person. That leads to the next thing. Number two, forgiveness doesn't remove all the consequences. So when God forgives us, he doesn't remove all the consequences. So let's say you, uh, you, you drink too much for 30 years of your life. Then you get right with God and you, you turn that life aside. But it, before you did that, you destroy your liver. When you get saved... You don't get a new liver at salvation, do you? The DUIs that you have don't magically disappear from your record. The consequences 
continue. Your kids ever do something wrong that really upsets you? You know, the kind of stuff that proves to you that, yeah, okay, yep, they got a sin nature. When you forgive them, does that mean that, well, okay, everything's good, no consequences, they're not grounded anymore, you've forgiven them, you don't do anything. No, you don't do that unless you're a terrible parent. And that doesn't happen when God forgives us either. Classic story I just mentioned, the David and Bathsheba thing in 2 Samuel 12. All the men's groups just read this and discussed that, that book in January. We saw the horrific consequences that this David and Bathsheba thing caused David and his family. Even though David repented, even though he asked for forgiveness, even though he received forgiveness. Hmm. So everything's all good. No, no, the child Bathsheba had dies. And because you, David, had her husband killed, war and conflict will never leave your kingdom and your family as long as you're alive. And by the way, this thing you did in secret, down the road, somebody else is going to come up and do it against you in public, taking your concubines, sleeping with them in broad daylight in front of the whole nation. I don't know about you. That sounds like some pretty cruddy consequences after God forgives David. So when you forgive somebody, you don't have to remove all the consequences when you forgive them. You don't have to forget when you forgive them, but you need to refocus and catch this one. Here's a third one. And it most, most, hap most likely happens in family situations. Forgiveness is not necessarily trusting again. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. When forgiveness is granted, the relationship, in a sense, the harm to the relationship can begin to be repaired. Civility to return, right? But yeah, I remember. And yeah, there are consequences. Are you immediately trusting? No, trust is earned. Your husband has an extramarital affair. You decide to forgive him and get back together. You know, you don't trust him immediately unless you're a fool. Look, you don't trust anybody who calls you on the phone just because they call you on the phone and ask you for your social security number, do you? You have a discerning spirit about you, you know, when you've been trusting when you shouldn't. The simple, it says in Proverbs, trust everybody, but the prudent checks things out. The prudent verifies. So what I see often happening in marriages and in family situations is that the person who does something wrong and has the extramarital affair, he repents, he turns around, and then he starts asking, oh, why don't you trust me anymore? Well, here's the answer, because you ain't trustworthy. <laughs> That's why. And until you prove you're trustworthy, I'm not going to trust. I'm going to verify. So I want to make sure I have all access to your emails, all your, all your uh, I'm going to know where you are every minute of every day. I'm going to be verifying, verifying, verifying until you prove that you are trustworthy. And this idea that you should trust immediately if you've forgiven somebody has caused, I think, those who have done wrong to have really unrealistic, inappropriate expectations about what's going to be like when you come back together. You're going to have some tough times because that person needs to verify. And it's going to cause some of us who need to forgive, not wanting to forgive, because we feel like we're being forced to trust automatically, which makes zero sense. So forgiveness, huge deal. We're going to have to get rid of some of the goofy ideas about forgiveness to do it right. we got to model the way God describes forgiveness in Scripture because he's telling us that's what he expects us to have and to exercise. So let's turn then to what forgiveness actually looks like. And I think there's three basic elements, and I don't think I can say that I've actually forgiven you if I'm missing any one of these three. So what real forgiveness is? Number one, it's refusing to seek my own revenge, refusing to seek my own revenge. First characteristic 
of genuine forgiveness is refusing to get even. Instead, we're going to let God be God. It's what Jesus did, right? We see this in 1 Peter. If there's anybody who's ever been wrong in history, it's Jesus Christ. So here's what happened when Jesus Christ suffered for us. He didn't deserve to do it. So he's totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong. But here's how he responded. It says when he was being, uh, being basically tortured, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. But you read that and you go, what does that mean? Well, okay. Sometimes when you have it out for somebody, you want to get revenge, you play all nice with them, right? You suck them into thinking you're their buddy, you're their friend. And all the time, what you're doing is you're looking for the moment you can strike. You're trying to get them in a situation where they trust you enough or whatever, and then you can basically lower the hammer on them, right? That's what deceit is. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He took abuse that was unbelievable. He didn't seek his own revenge. He entrusted himself to God. So catch this. What, is, what this means is that when I forgive, the other person isn't necessarily off the hook. The first step of seeking revenge doesn't mean that you can't go to God and say, God, I'm turning this over to you. Feel free to sick him. <laughs> Feel free to sick him, God. Okay, it sounds really weird, but you know, there are a lot of Psalms that go that way. The person kind of lays out all the wrongs that have been done to them. And, and basically says, I'm not going to get him back, but God, feel free to sick him. Go after my enemies. It's okay to long for justice. I mean, think about how road, way, road rage works. Somebody, somebody gets shot and murdered on an interstate in road rage. It, it's usually because somebody's done something wrong. They've, uh, they switched lanes too fast. They cut somebody off, uh, whatever. And the person who has the road rage thinks that all they're doing is teaching the stupid person a lesson. Yeah, I'm gonna do this to them so they don't do that anymore. So they think they're in the right because they've taught this person the lesson. So I've blown them away with my 357 Magnum. So I've taught them a lesson. I remember when Jackie and I were living over in Reston in a townhouse there, I accidentally did something on traffic, cut somebody off or something. I don't, I don't even remember what I did for sure, but they literally followed me for miles all the way into my parking lot. I wondered about that time whether I should have just driven to the police station, but too late, I'm, I'm boxed in. This guy wanted to get even to make sure I knew what I did was wrong and to teach me a lesson. And I'm figuring, okay, I don't know what's gonna go down here, but maybe the next time my wife sees me, I'll be laying dead in the parking lot. So I decided, okay, I park, I get out and I begin apologizing the minute I get out. And I let him rant and rage. I wasn't, I wasn't defensive. I was wrong. I copped to it. Eventually, he kind of worked his rage out. He kind of calmed down, and he sort of says, now, you need to be more careful. And I go, I agree I need to be more careful. And I plan to do that starting right now. And that ended things, and he departed, okay? So, but see, normally, revenge is taking the original offense and then amping it. It's rarely equal to the original offense. And seeking our own revenge just tends to Escalate, escalate things. It doesn't solve things. It doesn't even the score. It's always uh, a greater offense than the original. And then the escalation game begins that's even more damaging. So don't seek revenge yourself. Give it to God. All right. Number two, forgiveness isn't, is refusing to be consumed by what's happened in the past. The passage in Ephesians is uh, for still applicable here. Because when we haven't really forgiven, we can know that that's the case if it's still 
occupying our minds, if we sort of can't let it go, if it's preoccupying your life, if you're not able to, to turn from the sin that's been done against you and focus on something else that's more productive, if, if you forgive me. Here, here's the problem with me and you doing that. While you're focused on this, guess what the other person is doing? They're living rent-free between your ears. And while they're there, they're moving. And while you're there, the other person is just moving on merrily with their life. They're not thinking about you at all. The only one that's hurt in this is you. You're being consumed by something like this is when you're rolling around scenarios in your head or when a certain person's name is mentioned, you just are immediately stirred up into sort of agitation or anger or, or sorrow or whatever. Maybe you can't resist saying something nasty about the other person. I mean, you just haven't let it go and they're skipping happily through life. The point I'm trying to get to is, is I know it's probably not an overnight thing, but at some point you just got to get exhausted. You got to get tired of being consumed by this, of this hurt or anger or bitterness. So forgiveness is not seeking your own revenge, but it's seeking the Lord to get you to a place where you're not consumed by whatever happened, regardless of how horrific it might be. Okay. Number three, forgiveness is giving to others what God has given to us. Giving to others what God's given to us. We don't have much trouble forgiving little stuff. It's the big stuff, right, that gives us problems because it's big stuff. And the debt owed from that big stuff is huge. And the pain is real and it's enormous. And all Jesus is saying is this, <clears throat> could, could you just remember for a second the 10,000 75 pound bags of gold worth of debt I have forgiven you from? All your past, all your present, all your future sins. Yeah, yeah, four months salary, not a lot, but not even close to what I've forgiven you for. So you need to do for others what I've done for you. And if you don't, you really don't understand what I've done for you. And you need to get busy getting an understanding of, what, of that. It's important. <clears throat> now to conclude a couple of practical tips and a little uh, personal illustration. You've got to, to forgive people You've got to give God permission to muck with your mind, to change your mind, to change your heart, and, and maybe to give you a perspective, uh, his perspective, and his heart on this other person. Now, I've got some personal experiences on this, so I know this works, okay? So I've shared this, this little story before, but a lot of you weren't here uh, even coming to the surge when I did it, so I'll share it again. When I worked at CIA um, for about 20 years, Someone brought a charge against me for making racial slurs while I was sitting and eating in the cafeteria. I wasn't allowed to know who brought the charge officially, only that it would be investigated thoroughly and the punishment could range from anything uh, all the way up to getting fired. Now, everybody practically uh, around me in, in, in my part of the direct quarter of the quarter, fourth of the agency, knew about this because they reached out in this investigation to everybody I'd ever worked with in 20 years, including every person of color I'd ever worked with, including folks who had retired during those 20 years to determine this. They might not be able to figure out whether I said what this guy said I said in the cafeteria, but they're gonna do this investigation, a deep dive to see whether I might have had any tendency to say such stuff from any conversation I've ever had in 20 years at the agency. So you can imagine, 
this was a really fun time. <laughs> no, no. Well, here's the deal. Literally through prayer, God revealed to me who this person was. And it was a fellow who was still working on the team that I was leading. Turns out he was really mad about some particular direction he wanted to go on the part of this project we were working on. And that part of his idea was rejected. So he decided to simply lay in wait and to find a way to get back at me for this. Now, here's the deal. I find myself in a totally powerless situation because I don't know officially who this person is. And yet I'm still working with them day in, day out, all the time. And I think, looking back on it, that it was good to be powerless, right? Good to be powerless. Because if I could have done something, I might have, but I didn't have that option. So I just had God and prayer and my loving wife, right? Turns out those were enough because in those dark times, God showed up. He gave me some insight about this guy, what was going on with this guy, right? That just softened my heart towards him. And uh, even in the middle of the mess, I found myself forgiving him, even though I mean, I'm, I might end up getting fired. I'm telling you, that sort of thing is miraculous. And uh, so I find out this, I found out this fact, his wife is in the hospital. So I know that there's some health things going on in the family. So one day I'm driving home from work over in McLean, headed down the toll road. And it wasn't an audible voice like you'd say audible voice, but if you've ever had God speak to you and you know it's him speaking to you, it's almost like it's an audible voice. And God's telling me, I want you to get off at the rest and exit and go to the hospital and pay this guy's wife a visit. Now, can I tell you how many reasons I had and I offered to God for why this was a horrible idea? Many, many, many. <laughs> and I'm still coming on that exit, still fighting like a banshee with God. And at the last second, I just submitted. I, I took the exit. I went to the hospital, looked up his wife, told her I was a colleague of her husband, Shattered a bit, heard she was in the hospital. She and I prayed and I left. I'm thinking, man, this could blow back on me some bad, some way bad. I don't know. I don't know how. I just, I just imagine the worst, right? The guy comes up to me two days later and he always says, is, I just want you to know, my wife told me you just dropped by. I can't tell you, cannot tell you how much that meant to me and to her. Now you think, oh, happy story. He's going to withdraw his, his complaint, blah, blah. No, that didn't happen. Investigation still went on for months. It's just that I didn't have a desire to get even. I still had a desire to be exonerated. though. <laughs> now, here's what happened. The investigation ended months later, and the investigation amazingly concluded that the charge was an intentional fabrication. And by the rules of the agency, me, the offended party, had the right to decide what his punishment should be, including being fired. At that point, I asked that he not be punished at all in any way, just that a note be placed in his file about this so that if he ever did it to anybody else, there would at least be a record of it having happened to protect other people. Now, can I tell you this? That decision garnered more attention from colleagues and subordinates and people up and down the management chain than I could ever have imagined. Years later, I was still being asked about, how is, how is it possible 
that you could have responded to that with such grace and mercy. And every time I got that question, I got to share the gospel. I'm just telling you, in the end, even though other things look like they might work, revenge, hatred, spite, whatever, I'm telling you, forgiveness is the better choice for you and for your witness as a Christian. Okay, so we got to stop keeping score, man. we got to stop keeping score. If you are sitting around with a list of the wrongs done to you, you do not have an understanding of the forgiveness or love God has shown to you, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, it's a love chapter, right? We're told we don't have love, we got nothing. But God then describes love, and one of the traits of it is that we do not keep a list of wrongs. So look, stop keeping score unless you're, what you're really trying to do is lose. If you want to lose, then do that. But if your goal is to forgive more than the other person, that's fine. But you know what? That's not why, no, that's why no, nobody keeps a list of wrongs with the intention to out forgive other people. That's not their motive. Third thing is this, get a good mirror. Our tendency is to do a really great job of keeping track of all the wrongs against us. But when it comes to how I wronged others, my mirror can be very foggy. That so foggy it's ridiculous. That when you realize how immensely God's forgiveness is for you, you'll realize this, you have been forgiven by God, the moral equivalent of 750,000 pounds of gold, which is far more than anybody has committed in sin against you. And then you'll be able to play that forgiveness forward with a changed heart. So we end this way. Forgiveness is not an option with a Christian. Forgiveness 100% is not an option with a Christian. It's a huge deal. If we're Jesus followers, only a fool would refuse to forgive because the person who doesn't do it is not willing to exercise that faith, that little bit of faith they have and say, I'm going to play it for, I'm going to do it anyway. Then they're deemed wicked for refusing to acknowledge the huge batch of stuff that God has already taken off our shoulders. And wicked is not what we want to be called when it's all said and done. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word 